In his commentary on the book of Revelation, Dr. Ray Stedman tells about something that happened to him many years ago, and I quote, It was a hot, steamy afternoon in in Vietnam back in 1960. I was in the country to speak to pastors of the tribal churches. That afternoon, I settled back on a cot in a little wooden building, planning to take a brief nap. Then out of the corner of my eye, I caught a glimpse of something scurrying across the top of the doorframe. I jumped off the cot to get a closer look. As I moved closer, it ran down the side of the doorframe and out onto the floor. It stopped facing me. It was a scorpion. I had seen scorpions before, but I had never seen one like this. It was black and it was big, fully six inches long. It actually reared itself up on its hind legs, defiantly staring me in the face with its tiny bead-like eyes. Its segmented stinger-tipped tail was curled far forward in my direction, ready to strike. Clearly, this was not the kind of scorpion you kill with your shoe. It was the kind that could only be dispatched with a bazooka. I hastily scanned the room for something with which to smash it, preferably something with a very long handle. Then it darted off and disappeared behind a desk. I never saw that scorpion again, but I was never comfortable in that room after that. I later asked my Vietnamese friends what would have happened to me if the scorpion had stung me. They said that the scorpion's venom causes indescribable anguish for about 24 hours, not just at the site of the wound, but throughout the body. There is nothing you can take to relieve the pain. In fact, a painkiller would only exacerbate the effect of the venom, making the pain worse. The pain, often accompanied by temporary paralysis and fever, must simply be endured. End quote. With that brief description, I'm convinced that I don't ever want to be stung by one of those scorpions. Other accounts I have heard or read indicate that the pain is excruciating from the sole of the foot to the top of the head. Well, the day is coming when the inhabitants of this earth are going to experience that kind of torment for five agonizing months. It's recorded for us in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 9. So turn there with me, please, in your Bible, if you are not already there, to the last book of the Bible, the ninth chapter. And please follow along as I read verses 1 through 12, which will be our text for this message. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. 
The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their, their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king, had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. As we read through this passage of Scripture, we need to remember that this is in the midst of what is known as the trumpet judgments of the book of Revelation. The future seven-year tribulation period will consist of, among other things, three sets of judgments. The, the first sets, set of judgments is known as the seal judgments. They are called the seal judgments because they will take place every time the Lord Jesus breaks one of the seven seals on the scroll which he receives from God the Father back in chapter 5. The seal judgments are described in chapter 6. The second set of judgments in the tribulation period is known as the trumpet judgments. They are called the trumpet judgments because they will take place every time one of the seven presence angels blows his trumpet. You may remember that back in chapter 8, we have already looked at the first four trumpet judgments. As we come in this study to chapter 9, we are going to consider the fifth trumpet judgment. It is interesting to note that There are more occurrences of the words as and like here than in any other chapter of the Bible. This shows us how difficult it was for John, the Apostle John, to describe the scene he saw in this vision. He continually uses the words like, as, as, like to try to relay what he saw. What he saw was a host of demons released during the tribulation period, to torment those dwelling on the earth. Needless to say, this will be a severe judgment. In fact, the end of chapter 8 prepares us for the severity of what we read about here in chapter 9. After the first four trumpets had sounded and their judgments hit the earth, an eagle or an angel announces that the remaining three trumpet judgments are even worse Look at the last verse of chapter 8, verse 13. John says, And I looked, and I heard an angel, some translations eagle, flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, the worst is yet to come. That is amazing when you stop to think about it because the first four trumpets were horrendous judgments. Do you remember what they were? Notice verse 7, chapter 8. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. 
The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Those events will be like nightmares. But even worse will be this fifth trumpet judgment described in the opening verses of chapter 9. Now who will experience this judgment? Verse 13 says, the inhabitants of the earth. That phrase is one that we've talked about in the past in our study of the book of Revelation. It does not refer to every living, everyone living on the earth during the tribulation period. It is found 12 times in the book of Revelation, and it refers to those who are unbelievers, it refers to those who take the mark of the beast, and who do not repent of their deeds. That's who will be hit by this particular judgment of tormenting demons from the pit. Before we look at these verses in detail, we need to answer some questions that may have been raised in your mind when we read through this passage. Question number one, how did these demons get in the pit or the abyss in the first place? Are all demons there now? If not, what demons are there or what demons are not there? Those are some questions that come to mind when people read the opening verses of this ninth chapter. So first let me say this, not all demons are bound in the abyss or the pit. We know that for a fact. Many demons are free to roam around this world today wreaking havoc on people on planet earth. That is why Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That is clearly a reference to demons. Many, many demons are free today to tempt us and to seek to ruin our lives. They are an extension of the work of Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere present at the same time. But his influence is felt throughout planet Earth because his demons carry out his plan. So many, many demons are free today. However, some demons are not free to roam around the Earth today. Some demons are bound in the abyss or the pit, which is the same word, by the way. That's why I will use those two terms interchangeably. The, the Greek word abyssos sometimes is translated abyss in English or just the pit. It's the same place. By the way, the abyss is not hell and it's not Hades. Hades is the place where unbelievers or unsaved people go when they die today. It is a place of torment but it is not the final hell. 
The final hell will be occupied by people after the great white throne judgment when they are raised from the dead to be sent their body, soul, and spirit. The people who die today and their, gra- their body goes into the grave, their soul or spirit doesn't technically go to hell. It goes to Hades. Hell is where all unbelievers and all demons and Satan will eventually end up for all eternity. But the abyss is something different. It is a place of incarceration for some demons. To illustrate this, back up with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Go back to the third Gospel record. Luke, chapter 8. We'll pick up the story from our Lord's ministry in verse 26. Luke, chapter 8, verse 26. We read, Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time and wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded, that is, Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion. Because many demons had entered him. And they begged Jesus that he would not command them to go into the abyss. They knew that's where Jesus had sent demons who had encountered him in his earthly ministry. When Jesus cast out demons, he sent them to the abyss or the pit. The abyss then is a place of incarceration for some demons to be held until the final judgment. Jesus cast some of the demons there during his earthly ministry. But I don't believe those are the only demons who are there. Skip over near the end of the New Testament to 2 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. It says, for if God did not spare the angels, by the way, just a little pause, just in case everyone's not aware of this, demons are fallen angels. That can clearly be established. They are sometimes called angels, and in this case, they are called angels because they are fallen angels. So, verse 4, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to, and now, Different versions use a different word here. The literal Greek word is Tartarus. That is the the word that refers to the abyss or the pit. Some translations, some versions use the word hell here in verse 4, which isn't the most accurate translation. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus or the, the pit and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So this verse tells us God has cast some of the demons to this place. It raises the question, which demons? Peter gives us a hint. Verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, 
bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Notice that Peter is linking these demons with events connected to the time of Noah. Now, in case you think that's a a stretch, Jude gives us even more help in, in, in identifying these demons. So turn to the right. Just before the book of Revelation is the tiny book of Jude. Jude, verse 6. Jude, verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they didn't stay where they belong, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now watch this. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now notice what Jude says here. Here he refers to some fallen angels who were like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah in that they gave themselves over to sexual immorality. Is there any record of this in the Bible? Yes, there is. Because Genesis 6 refers to the sons of God taking the daughters of men as their wives. Some of the demons took on human form and took women as their wives. And because of that vile activity, God cast them into the pit or the abyss or Tartarus. So, some of the most wicked and vile demons ever to encounter the human race such as the ones Jesus cast out and the ones in Genesis 6, will be released during the tribulation period to torment the earth dwellers, the unbelievers. Now let's go over to Revelation 9 to see John's horrifying description of this event. Revelation chapter 9. Verse 1 tells us, Then the fifth angel sounded... And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless bottomless pit. This, This star is not an it. This is not a celestial body like the sun or moon. This star is a he. We know from the last phrase in this verse and from the rest of the passage who this is. Who is this star? Jesus answers this for us in Luke 10, 18, where he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The way John words verse 1 tells us that this star had already fallen from heaven before this vision. He doesn't say, I saw a star falling from heaven. I saw a star fallen. It had already fallen. So John, had, John saw a star that had already fallen. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss. Verse 2, And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. When the pit is opened, smoke billows forth with so much volume that it blackens the sky and the sun. 
It's an ominous picture. And right behind the smoke comes these fierce demons. Verse 3 says, Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. In one sense, John says these beings were like scorpions. And in another sense, he says they were like locusts. But they are neither locusts nor scorpions. They are demons. And why does John describe them this way? Because he wants us to understand that as a result of being fierce, John refers to them as scorpions. Because there are so many, John refers to them as locusts. They will be virtually innumerable. That's the picture that John is portraying by referring to them as locusts. For example, in one locust plague, it was estimated that 130 million locusts per square mile covered the ground. They may travel in a column 100 feet deep and up to four miles in length, leaving the land stripped bare of all vegetation. That's what John wants us to understand. This reminds me of the Old Testament book of Joel. Back up there for just a moment. Back into Hebrew scripture. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. It's not a large book. A little bit difficult to find. Ezekiel is a large book. Daniel follows Hosea, then Joel. As we come to chapter 1 of the book of Joel, a terrible plague has ripped through the southern kingdom of Judah. An ominous cloud, black cloud, descended on the land. What was it? It was locusts, actual locusts. In a matter of hours, every living green thing was stripped bare. Grapevines were stripped clean, grain fields lay bare, fruit trees stood leafless and unproductive. The devastation was so complete that even grain offerings to God were impossible. Joel chapter 1, verse 2. Hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? And the answer to that is an emphatic no. Nothing like this had ever happened. The, The plague of locusts was tremendously devastating to the land. It was even more than a a once-in-a-lifetime event. It was a a once-in-a-four-generation event. Verse 3, tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. That's how astounding this swarm of locusts was. In fact, according to verse 4, there were four different kinds of locusts that came through. Verse 4 says, What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. What Joel is trying to say here is that nothing of this dimension, duration, or destruction had been known before. Why did this happen? It was the judgment of God. The locusts came in the millions, if not billions, and they were like a ferocious nation carrying out the judgment of God. Verse 5 says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wait and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new vine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. 
For a nation has come up against my land strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. In other words, the branches of the trees and the plants were stripped bare. Verse 8, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. For grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. Again, the devastation was so complete that even grain offerings to God were utterly impossible. Verse 10 says, the field is wasted, the land mourns. For the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Try to, try to picture this in your mind, beloved. We're talking about total devastation here by billions of locusts. I've read that these locust plagues could be five miles wide and ten miles long, and they have been known to fly 17 hours at a time, covering over 1,500 miles. In fact, they could be so thick that they could block out the sun, bringing temporary darkness over the earth. Nothing stopped them. Not ditch, not fire, not wall, not door, not window. It would be a horrifying sight, especially in a day when total dependence was on the crops of the land. Verse 15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. The people had had their day. Their day was characterized by drunkenness and hardness of heart to the Lord. Now this was God's day. It was the day of judgment. It was the day of destruction. There's a little play on words here in verse 15 in the original language. The word destruction is the Hebrew word shad, and the word almighty is the Hebrew word shaddai. They both come from the same Hebrew word. So it is saying, with a play on words, there will be shod from Shaddai, destruction from the Almighty. And it was severe. Verse 16 says, Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for the fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. These circumstances were so dreadfully severe that even the animals suffered under the divine rod of God's judgment. But And don't miss this. The desolation that Judah suffered during this tragic ordeal was nothing compared to the judgment that is coming in the future tribulation period. 
That's what the rest of the book of Joel is about. He uses this present tense situation that the people experience to warn and teach about the future. That's exactly what he does in chapter 2. In the early verses of chapter 2, Joel uses the picture of these invading locusts to say that the invasion and the judgment of the future is going to be far, far worse. Most Bible scholars believe, and I would agree, that these verses, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, are describing the time in the future that we commonly refer to as the tribulation period. Daniel 12:1 says, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. That describes it. Nothing that has ever happened even compares. All other tragedies, all other adversities pale in comparison. But God is gracious in that he warns people about it many, many times. He does so right here in chapter 2. Notice how he does. Verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion. And sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong. The like of whom has never been. Nor will there ever be any such after them. Even for many successive generations. A fire fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds. So they run with a noise like chariots over mountaintops. They leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Now the question comes, of whom is this referring What group is Joel describing here in verses 1 through 5? There are two possibilities. One is that he is referring to the invasion of Israel that will take place during the tribulation period by the king of the north and his army. That is referred to in Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11. The other possibility is that it is referring to the demon locusts that will be released during the tribulation period. And I believe the evidence points to this group. The destruction caused by the locusts in Joel's day does not compare to the destruction that will result when the swarm of demons is released from the pit. Verse 6, Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. And the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army. For his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? This last verse confuses some people. Because you may have noticed that it refers to this army as God's army, the Lord's army. Why would Joel call it that? Because this is the judgment of God on the earth. We see this fact in Revelation 9 as it is the fifth trumpet of God's judgment that initiates this event. 
even though it might not be their purpose, this army is carrying out God's purpose, the judgment of God. And according to verse 11, it will be great and very terrible. Now back to Revelation chapter 9 as we consider it just briefly. Back to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 9. Verse 4 says they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. By the way, this is further proof that these locusts are not normal locusts. Normal locusts do harm vegetation, green things. But these don't harm the vegetation. Instead, they harm those who do not belong to God. God will seal all believers during this time to keep them from being hurt by this judgment. But unbelievers will experience this in all of its severity. Verse 5 And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. These demons, as ferocious as they will be, will not be allowed to kill people. They will only be allowed to torment them, and they will only be allowed to do so for five months. Several commentators point out that this is the normal life cycle of locusts, usually from May to September, five-month life cycle. Interestingly, this is the same amount of time the judgment of the floodwaters covered the earth in Noah's day. For five months, these demons will torment people like scorpions. While studying for this message and preparing for this message, I read an account of a boy who was stung in the foot by a scorpion. It said, and I quote, He rolled around on the ground, grinding his teeth and foaming at the mouth. End quote. That's how intense the pain is. And that's how intense it will be when this fifth trumpet judgment is sounded upon the earth. Verse 6 says, In those days, Men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. This is going to be so bad that people will attempt suicide in large numbers, but they will be unsuccessful. Bodies will not sink and drown. Poison and pills will have no effect. And somehow even bullets and knives will not do their intended job. They won't be able to die, which emphasizes two things. Number one, this shows the severity of this judgment. It will be so bad that people will want to die, but they won't be able to die. But let me hasten to add number two. This is the mercy of God. No, no, I didn't misspeak there. This is the mercy of God Because it gives people time to repent. Think about it. If they were to be successful in their attempts at suicide, then they would immediately go to the eternal wrath of God. So God keeps them from being successful 
to give them more time to repent and escape eternal wrath. Verse 7, the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their, their faces were like the faces of men. Here is where John begins to use the word like over and over again. Maybe you noticed it as I read the verse three times in this one verse. He says their shape was like horses. This may indicate that they are large creatures, not little insects. Don't picture little locusts. Large. Their faces were like the faces of men. That probably indicates their intelligence and human capabilities because faces like the faces of men in apocalyptic literature often conveys that idea. Verse 8 says, They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. Well, that describes today's rock bands. Is that what's being described here? No, that's, that's not what it is. This is something far, far worse. This describes their wildness, their ferocity. Verse 9, And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. In other words, they aren't vulnerable to being hurt or killed. They have these breastplates. They have these, this protection. Nothing will stop them. Verse 10, they had tails like scorpions and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. This is repeated for a second time Because John wants to somehow emphasize how unspeakable this is going to be. Verse 11, And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 27 says that locusts don't have a king. That's a reminder that these are not normal locusts. These are not normal locusts. These are demons, and they do have a king. This king could be a high-ranking demon who resides in the pit right now, or it could be Satan himself. Either, Either way, we know this king's character. He is a destroyer. John gives us his name in both Hebrew and Greek, Abaddon and Apollyon, to make sure that no one misses No one misses it. The king of these demons is a destroyer, and he will lead his army on a path of destruction like this world has never seen. Verse 12 says, One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. That's tying this statement in with the last verse of chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 13, where it says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And now we're told in chapter 9, verse 12, one woe is past. One. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. As awful as this is, and I'm convinced that we can't grasp it all, this is not the end. This isn't all that will will happen. This is trumpet judgment number five, which means there are two more trumpet judgments yet to come. There are still two more woes. 
It's impossible to comprehend this. But this is what is going to happen someday, beloved. It will happen because God says it's going to happen. I don't know what else to say. I'm at a loss for words to describe what this is going to be like. But I do know this. If you die without the Lord Jesus Christ, if you die in rebellion against God, then what you will face will be millions of times worse than this. You will face the eternal wrath of God. It won't only last five months and then end. It will never end. It will be forever. So repent of your sin today and receive Jesus Christ as we bow together in closing prayer. Please bow your head with me. Father, when we read of something like this in your word, something that is coming on the earth in the future at some point, it's no wonder that Jesus said it will be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a a nation or people. Nothing will ever, nothing that has happened compares to what will happen in the future. And Lord, as we read about this, we, we, we acknowledge that our minds, we can't wrap our minds around this, we can't really fathom this or grasp it, But we do know that as horrific as this will be, it will give people five months, five more months to repent, to let go of their rebellion. And so even though this is certainly going to be a a horrendous experience, even in it we see your mercy, not allowing people to end their lives and thrust themselves to eternal wrath. Father, as we look at a a description like this in your word, it reminds us that you are a holy God. You are a God of justice. And the sin and rebellion and transgressions of mankind have to be punished. They have to be. And so those of us who know your son, Jesus Christ, we are thankful that you were willing to allow our transgressions to be punished at the cross, to be punished when you poured out your wrath on your own precious Son as our substitute. This is a reminder to us of what you have delivered us from, and it prompts thankfulness and gratitude. So in closing, we pray for anyone here in our midst who is here in this place without a heart surrendered to Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit use the powerful truth of your word that we have seen in this text to bring a softness of heart before it's too late. And so we pray these things together in Jesus' precious, wonderful, matchless, and saving name. Amen.